So I'm thrilled to be talking with Christine Emba about her new book, which is called Rethinking Sex. And the subhead of this book is a provocation. And indeed, it is a provocation, but maybe not in the way that you'd imagine. She asks why, if we're now more liberated about sex than ever, are so many people finding sex disappointing and empty and sometimes even traumatizing? Christine is a columnist for the Washington Post, where she writes about everything from the frivolous way people are weighing in on social media about the invasion of Ukraine to what Prince Andrew's legal troubles say about wealth and accountability. Hi, Christine. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So excited. Um, as I mentioned, I've covered a lot of these issues that you write about, and it's, I think it's a really necessary book to have these conversations. I know that I have a 20-year-old who who asks many of the questions that you're asking, and it has a lot of the dilemmas. So um, right now, I think the, the broad argument, as you write, is that sex is good, have as much of it as you can, as long as you get, descent, uh, long as you get consent. Um, but what's wrong with that? Yeah, so I honestly I envisioned this book a little bit as a critique of that uh, very argument. Um, I think in the modern era, we say, you know, exactly that. Sex is great, get as much of it as you can. And consent is the only way we can talk about whether something is right or wrong. It's kind of our only boundary line. But I actually assert in the book that consent is a floor. It's not a feeling. Um, And that means it's, you know, not a real ethic. I think we want better from sex and better for our relationships than to ask each other, let me make sure that I didn't commit an actual felony here. If not, everything is (laughs) good. I think we can do better. And what, um, you talked to a lot of young people for this book and a lot of researchers. What do you think the main sort of psychological or, or social effects of this kind of philosophy and the, 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 this sexual ethic, I guess, have been on the way people feel about sex? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion and then a lot of pain in some cases where people think that, you know, they agree to something and agreement means that it should be good, right? Then why does it feel so bad? And actually there's a researcher at Georgetown, Robin West, who coined this idea of hedonic dysphoria, which I talk about a little bit in the book. Um, It's the sort of disconnect between sort of what you feel like you should feel and what you actually feel. Um, And she points out that it happens a lot of these situations when, you know, people agree to sex or consent to some act under the belief that like, well, sex is good and consent means that this should be good and then it's not good and they doubt themselves. They wonder, is there something wrong with me that I didn't enjoy this? Should I not have allowed this? Is it always going to be like this? But they don't really know how to talk about it because again, we've just agreed that consent makes everything fine. So I think there's a lot of buried hurt and confusion that people are feeling and I don't think that they have to feel that way or should. I think one of the things that really interested me about the book is how you saw capitalism and the abundance of choice and instant gratification and the way we think about each other. And and, and it was a bit of a radical and fascinating statement you made that capitalism actually shapes the way we think about our bodies and about sex, and that in turn affects what we expect from it. And how do you see that playing in, you know, including the dating app world? Oh, my gosh, of course. I think capitalism is you know, one of the philosophies just undergirding sort of our modern way of living. It's kind of the water we swim in, and so it's hard for people to critique sometimes. 
But, you know, when you talk about dating, even the way that we've talked about dating and sex has changed. It's the dating marketplace. Um, you know, on dating apps, we sort of swipe through different people as if they're literally just tickets and we can pick out who we want. And we're always trying to sort of leverage upwards. Um, I think it leads to a really dehumanizing view of the other person. Um, if we think of other people as just options other than an array of options, it means that we're not seeing them as people. And right. we're not telling ourselves that we should treat them as such with the dignity they deserve. And I and I, I think it was interesting, too, that it, there was this one woman that you described in the book where she joked that she ordered a man on Tinder. And I think a lot of women play up a lot of bravado about how casual they are about sex. And yet when you really spoke to her, that wasn't exactly how she felt about the relationship she had with that person after she ordered him up. And I'd love you to talk about that and how kind of that bravado women have on the other on the flip side, this sort of melancholy or I'm not sure what to how to how to phrase it but sadness I guess yeah it was melancholy I mean this woman you know she was telling me in another conversation that she realizes this is kind of a weird sometimes the way that she and her friends would talk about guys it was kind of a weird coping mechanism um and I think that this has to do with you know capitalism is that you know, we have this feeling based on everything else in our society that we should be able to get what we want. Um, and if we want something, we should have it, and that is good. Um, and I think when it comes to other people, that's not necessarily the truth. And then also, I think, you know, I argue in the book that despite many other things we've heard, sex is actually a unique activity. Um, it's a specific and intimate way of connecting with other people. Um, and treating it as a commodity, you know, this bravado about how much you can get, like how it doesn't matter to you, um, eventually stops ringing true for people or even doesn't ring true for them in the first place. They just talk like that or act like that because that's what they're supposed to do. But then later on, you know, when they're alone, um, when the relationship that they actually really wanted hasn't arrived, it hurts. There's a sense of loss there. Um, despite how briefly they might have talked about it with their friends over brunch. And I, I think there is this, that bravado and the way they talk about it and it, the kind of being ashamed that you can't play it cool. And I loved what you said about chill, because chill can mean a lot, a lot of things, like chill as in I'm chill, I'm cool, it doesn't matter, and I'm chill like I'm cold, and I've had a cold attitude towards sex or towards relationships and and I think you heard from a lot of people that that doesn't you know that has long-term effects even though they weren't assaulted or they weren't you know weren't coerced into doing anything um can you talk a little bit about the sort of long-term effects of the kind of sex that results from that attitude well I thought that you know the discussion of chill or the idea of you know being cool about things like not having too many feelings about things um was really important because i really do think that this is something that has become almost a, a cultural trope mm -hmm. that you know smart women and men like young people who are really wise up about it um just have sex and they don't care right and not caring is good actually um but in fact i think especially in the modern era what 
a lot of people long for is something to care about. Um, you know, emotional feelings, a real connection. And, you know, by pretending not to care, you actually deprive yourself of the thing that you're really searching for. And then even when you're pretending not to care or acting as chill as possible, you can have the results of, you know, what I was talking about before, this hedonic dysphoria where your feelings don't match up with what you're experiencing. Right. Um, but also you're chill about things that you shouldn't be chill about. Right. Um, you know, when someone hurts you or degrades you or you have, you know, a terrible experience, if you tell yourself that you just need to be chill about it, that means you don't get to talk about it. You don't get to, like, experience any sadness. You don't really get to process what has happened, which I think makes the hurt last longer in many cases and makes people feel like they're the problem, not what happened to them. I think that I've I've really you know in my lifetime I'm, I'm an older generation than than some than you and some of the women you talk to but this has been um, I think for even even longer than the Me Too even longer than the dating apps this idea that you're going to be one of the guys you're going to be cool about it uh, has been going on for a while and that kind of gets me to the most provocative thing I think you have in the book is the chapter that says women and men are not alike and. I'm not sure everybody in my audience listening to this will know why that's so provocative for a new generation who, <laughs> but maybe you can sort of explain the, the, some of the background on how we've come to this point where we want desperately to see that the genders are equal in the way that they think about sex, but maybe they aren't for lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah, I, as I wrote this, I was... I was a little bit even nervous to write it myself because I do think that it's one of the parts that will get the most pushback. Um, but how to start here? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like biologically, we know, but yet and yet and yet, yes. <laughs> and yet, yeah, I, there's honestly a lot sort of packed into that statement, and I think it can easily be um, read the wrong way. But I think that. As, you know, the earliest feminist movements, um, you know, the point was for women to be seen as, you know, human persons equal in dignity and value to men. Um, that women were worth just as much as men and that their ideas and feelings were just as much. Um, but I actually argue in the book that over time that has become kind of warped. Um, and we've moved instead to an understanding that, you know, like women and men are the same, actually. Um, there's no distinction between how they might feel about things and to say that, you know, women might view things differently than men or have some different concerns or experiences in men is almost seen as a little taboo. Um, but when it to sex, especially, I think that that belief is false <laughs> and can in fact be kind of harmful and unfair to women because really it's pushing women to act more like men um not necessarily suggesting you know that men take women's feelings into account um and you know care for them as human as much as they would care for themselves so you know i point out that in sex there are a lot of sort of risks that women assume that men don't you know women can get pregnant um women who want to have children have a shorter biological clock, I guess, than men do, and their time runs out faster in some ways. Um, and I don't think it's 
dad to be aware of that and to acknowledge that there are differences between men and women that might choose them to approach sex differently. Um, so that's the point that I'm making. It's, um, and, and they're more vulnerable physically, right? They're uh, to, right. To, to being hurt or to, to, to almost anything. And uh, I, I was thinking that there was a, there was a line in there where you, ha- you said that somebody you interviewed got a text that said, I'm going to send a bill to my exes for my egg freezing. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious, but not. Do you, do you know what I mean? And I, and I think that the whole sense of time, you know, how much time do you give a relationship? Well, how do you spend your time? Well, how much effort and heart do you put into it um, when people are on different fertility clocks? Uh, it, it is fascinating, and we don't want it. I think that's, uh, I won't say it's taboo to talk about, but it's, but it's kind of messes with the original premise of we're just in sex to have fun as much as possible, you know, and live live right. a life. Of... No, exactly. And I think it also messes with, you know, sort of our understanding of consent. Because if you come to the idea of, like, consent from the belief that, you know, women and men, we're all the same, we're all just kind of disembodied minds making decisions... Um, then you don't have to take into account sort of the real person, the other person, you know, who you're having sex with or who your partner is. So as a man, you can be like, well, that person made their decision. I don't have to think about their fertility timeline or, you know, their physical fragility or their emotions in any different way than I would think about mine because we're all the same. But I think that's actually very unfair um, and unrealistic and leads to you know, relationships where there is an imbalance and one person might be more likely to get hurt than the other. Um, And I actually think by that, you know, by claiming that everyone is the same and making decisions from the exact same sort of position of freedom, um, some women are hurting themselves. Yeah, yeah. And and you did talk to some men who also found this sort of, I mean, and I wonder, can men switch when they've been raised in a culture of acquisitive sex and... Do you know what I mean? Like where their self-esteem can sometimes be tied to, to, to the volume of sex. I think you cited a study where mm-hmm. the biggest regret some men had was not getting up, not taking opportunities for sex when they had them. But there were some men who felt empty as well. And, uh, and, and I wondered how it felt to talk to them and whether you had hope that despite being marinated in a culture of more is better for men particularly, and they don't have the same timeline, there is hope to kind of change the culture and why, whether you do think there's hope. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons why rethinking sex is supposed to be a provocation is that it's a provocation on many accounts. And one of the things that I'd like to raise is that, you know, the sexual culture as it is now is sad for many women and hurting women, but it's not great for men either. (laughs) Um, There are men who are being, you know, pressured to perform sexually or, you know, lean into this acquisitive view of sex who don't really want to, who also want to have relationships with care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I talk, I do talk to um, a number of those men and interview them for the book. And I think there is a growing realization, actually, especially as um, they get older, frankly, um, that maybe what they were told about, you know, quantity matters, not quality, and like you could do this forever, is not actually what they want to do forever. And that's actually something that gives me hope, both in men and women. I think in 
talking to people about these questions for the book, I found that more men and women were sort of questioning this status quo, going like, wait, why, who told me I had to have sex like this? Do I really need to be, what's, I feel like there's a problem here and I want to know where to go. Um, and just, you know, looking back and thinking over the decisions and wondering whether there's a better way. Um, and I think just beginning to have conversations about what that better way might look like is a sign of hope. I wonder if the pandemic, because I think we write beautifully about why sex is not, why sex is not a sandwich that you can share. I can't remember. We won't sort of a sort of a discussion about why sex is not like other things, and that the physical intimacy of sharing your body is different than anything else um, that you might consent to, and that the the need for physical touch and skin to skin closeness and 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 hugging is. Is, is universal, not just male or female, and that maybe during the pandemic there was this sort of realization that we need humans, we need each other, um, and also kind of a little bit of a pullback from other forms of hypercapitalism where people are thinking like anti-work or they, maybe they don't want to always be getting more. So I wonder if you see, if you heard any of that and what you think about um, about the kind of perhaps a shift in values that's coming just from, just from that, just from this last two years? Oh, absolutely. I actually do think the pandemic might maybe, hopefully, be something of a turning point. Um, and that first of all, all that time alone gave people time to think. Um, you know, part of the problem with a sort of hyper-capitalized lifestyle pre-pandemic was that everybody was running around, dating rapidly, like swiping on apps and didn't really stop to, to think about it. And then you're kind of sat at home <laughs> for two years and you're like, oh, actually, maybe I want someone to talk to. <laughs> like maybe actually having had a real relationship and, you know, building that with somebody would have led to a less lonely period in this time. Like maybe... I want something serious, actually. And then, you know, having to take a pause from even sex, I think gives people time to rethink and revisit exactly what they were doing and what they want going forward. Um, so I think there's definitely more of a desire, actually, for real relationships um, post-pandemic. And people, are, people care more about the things that have real meaning in their lives. Um, at least that's what, that's what I think. That's what I have been coming across in people I've talked to, you know, later on in the pandemic as opposed to before it or in the earliest months. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you say about freedom, what do you say? Maybe we need less freedom but more and more interconnectedness and interdependence. And I think there's this sort of feeling that we've realized how inter interdependent we, we are. Um, and in, in back to the capitalism thing, in a society where you pursue your your original mandate is to pursue your individual needs and wants and desires and, and, and achievements, there is some rethinking uh, about how we look at society and how we fit in. Not you know, and I, I love what you said about that and about how one of the things about the dating apps is that those people are separate from your community. So therefore, it's not a community thing if you treat somebody badly that you met on an app. Right, doesn't matter. But with the pandemic, we've really gotten a little lesson in that we all are actually connected, and you know that maybe not caring or not you know being interacting with people in a way that you act like it doesn't matter isn't the best for us <laughs> in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I think that's no. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think for so long we've defined 
freedom as you know being alone to do whatever we want without being responsible to anyone or tied down to anyone and then especially during the pandemic we woke up and we're like i would actually like to be tied to some people <laughs> like I, yeah. I want to care about yeah. other people i wish i had other people to care about me yeah um and so it's less you know like chain yourself to the ground and more like you know rely on other people like have relationships that you have um responsibilities towards and that have responsibilities towards you being able to like embed yourself in a network of people who you care about and care about you is actually a beautiful and valuable thing and maybe not what we should be running away from or deriding as you know lame or backwards um and the dating gap thing is it's so true um i mean this is an experience that even i've had dating um, there is something about being kind of disintermediated uh, from people you meet, right? Like if you would meet someone, say through a friend, um, you know, you would you would know that what you say to them or how you act with them will get back to your friend at least eventually. And so you kind of you would try and at least be polite or treat them well. Whereas sometimes I think on dating apps there is this feeling of like well, I've never seen this person before. I'm never going to see them again. I'll say what I want. I'll do what I want. I'll, nobody has to know because it's private. We're free. No one's going to tell on me. Right. Um, and that really leads to some bad behavior or normalizes bad behavior. Um, people like sending pictures to people that they would never send to, you know, someone who might know their mom. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the ghosting. I have a lot of friends who... Um, and including me, I went dating after I got divorced and it's easy to ghost people and be ghosted after you think you have a meaningful mm-hmm. connection because there's no, there are no stakes involved. And that, I think that alters our perception of other people as disposable, or I think you'd put it something like there's a difference between one and one in a million and one of a million. Like, like sometimes you find someone and they're wonderful and they're one in a million, but on these apps, there's always more, you know? And so you're less tr- um, conscious of the other person's humanity. Yeah, that's such a great way of putting it. One in versus one of. Um, and I mean, I think that's in some ways the larger one of the larger messages of this book. Um, one way to change our sexual culture for the better is to remember that each individual that we're coming into contact with is a person um, with dignity that you know, should be respected uh, and cared for in some way. And there's so many forces playing on us um, in our culture, whether it's sort of the overarching field of capitalism, whether it's traditions of, you know, Playboy magazine, uh, sex in the city that, you know, tell us to act without feeling um, or to kind of use and discard people as objects that would tell us that that's not the case. But we need to push back if we want to, you know, a healthier way to live with each other. I, would you give a little bit, I think you, one of the things that's prevalent through the book and you talk a little bit about spirituality and sex and I think you have an unusual background in that sense because you grew up, uh, I guess, in an evangelical household and that you, you know, how does that, how does coming from that side, from a more spiritual side uh, of society how did that shape the way you looked at the book? Does that give you a better perspective or, 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 or a different, just a different perspective as you walked into to writing this? Um, I think a little bit of both, I would say. So, yeah, I think I grew up in an evangelical household. And then 
in college kind of against the grain of most college students. I converted to Catholicism. Um, and I'm still Catholic. Um, and I think that that influences the way that I view sex, but even my views have changed over time. One thing that I think um, my religious background brought to me is that, you know, I didn't have sex until like fairly late as an adult, I guess I would say. Um, and so I both like experienced the world and our sexual culture from the outside looking in, like, you know, seeing what my friends and my peers were doing and being like, oh, like, would I do, like, am I interested in this? And then, you know, being very much a part of that world later on. And so I, I think I kind of saw some of the upsides and downsides of both. Growing up evangelical, I think we've all heard about, you know, purity culture and this idea of like, oh, sex is like, oh, you can't, don't have sex, don't even talk about it or think about it. Um, and I don't think that's healthy. That's definitely one way to get people really interested in having sex. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, sort of moving to the other side of the spectrum, it was helpful to think about like, oh, maybe there were some valuable lessons there about like, what sex means and what is meaningful and how humans should care for each other. Um, that I got from that evangelical and religious and Catholic, especially, frankly, background that I wasn't hearing um, from the broader culture. It, it is interesting to me because, you know, we've moved, you know, more people identify as agnostic than ever before. Um, so it is, it is kind of a, a, you know, kind of a, I would not say radical, that was my dog jumping off. Of course he was. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but... I think, you know, and, and that's why it was interesting that you looked at the spiritual nature of sex or the convening of bodies and the intimacy of it. And I loved what you wrote about that, why that is, um, even when you want it to be not meaningful, it is your giving of yourself, you know. And um, I thought it was interesting that we talk a lot about what we put in our bodies in terms of food. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of abstinence with foods and a lot of conversations mm -hmm. about what's healthy for us and what's good for us. And that is a... You know, uh, and yet this is treated more casually, and I, I, I guess that's not even a question. It's just sort of an observation that you made me come to by when I was reading this. I said, you know, we, we, we spent a lot more time talking about, uh, you know, with Gwyneth Paltrow's site Goop about what we do to our bodies nutritionally and on our skin and purity and, you know, that kind of thing than we do with our actual, you know, when we, when we talk about sex. And I wondered if you had seen that, particularly in your generation where... There's a lot of conversations about what's organic, you know, what's natural, what, you know, how to, you know, whether or not you're going to become a vegan. And, and yet on the, on the flip side, this connection of bodies is less kind of contemplated in the same way. Yeah, definitely. It's, there's a weird dichotomy in the way that we as a culture talk about sex, right? Like the one thing is sort of it's almost everything. If you're not having sex, you're like weird and missing out on an important feature of life. And if you, at the same time, the sex that you have, like doesn't mean anything. It's just like shaking hands, doesn't matter. Um, and it's totally at odds with how we talk about other things in our lives, especially, you know, even more now, people are so dedicated to exercise, to eating right, to, you know, various kinds of self-care that are really almost just about surface things and yet something that affects us or can affect us so deeply and have frankly very lasting consequences up to and including the creation of a whole another life 
um, we treat casually. I do think, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if younger generations, and I think this is happening, are as younger generations tend to be skeptical um, of past rules and are becoming a little bit more skeptical of this. There are, you know, Gen Zers who I follow on TikTok who talk about sex as like an exchange of energy and they need to like, they have decided to be celibate or to stop dating because they want to like preserve their energy for something that matters. And um, that <laughs> that's an interesting way of talking about it, but it actually does seem almost a little bit more alive and awake to the realities that, you know, sex is something that affects us just like anything else does. Um, and it's kind of weird to pretend otherwise. It's it's so interesting. I have a, a twenty year old, and yeah, there's a, the Gen Zs are so different from the millennials. And I think you're probably in your thirties, right? So there's a vast there's a gulf, man. And, and I think they are um, they are in their own kind of value. Their values are different. What they want is different. They're less atavistic. I think I, you know it's going to be interesting to see where they go, um, and whether you're kind of writing about something that's at the dawn of what's going to happen you know like a, a shift um maybe a rejection yeah i really do wonder um yeah i have i have two younger sisters actually who <laughs> at some points i consulted with on some parts of the book <laughs> it is so interesting to see how different things look from a vantage point of 10 years younger or five years younger even well i think that almost every conversation that i end that ends with hope ends with a conversation about Gen Z and the poor things. I hope we don't burden them too much. They're going to fix the environment. Um, and so I, I really thank you for having this conversation with me because I, I think I'll get a, a lot of uh, letters and comments about this, but uh, also because I, I'm, I'm glad you're starting the conversation. I'm going to be interested to hear how people react to it when you put it out in the world and see what various generations and various genders have to say about consent, sex, what it means. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. You've given me more stuff to think about <laughs> um, as I continue to sort of press this topic 